This week on AARP, The Perfect Scam. Somebody's always going to be trying to come up with a new scheme. It's just, it's just too much money to be made easily. He felt like he was working on a drug case rather than a white-collar crime case. Welcome back to the second part of our two-part story about Darren Berg, who, over the course of almost a decade, convinced hundreds of investors to trust him with their retirement savings. By 2010, some investors were wary of where their money was going, and investigators were digging into Berg's business, the Meridian Group, and what appeared to be a massive Ponzi scheme. Last week, joining us, we had Jerry Walsh. She is president of the FINRA Foundation, and she joins us once again because she knows a lot about this kind of thing. So uh, thanks for being back once again. Thanks for having me. Jerry, before we get into this week's story, uh, you were president of the FINRA Foundation. What does FINRA stand for, and what is the foundation? FINRA is the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and we're a not-for-profit, non-governmental regulator that oversees the brokerage industry. So anybody that sells a stock, bond, mutual fund, variable in has to be licensed by FINRA. But Congress empowered us to do this work, and we're overseen by the Securities and Exchange Commission. So FINRA oversees the brokerage industry, and it believes that one of the most important things it can do to help protect investors is to educate them. And that's where the foundation comes in. About 15 years ago, FINRA created the FINRA Investor Education Foundation to help Americans, all Americans, build financial capability. And we do that through outreach uh, and through research. Um, We've even done some research with AARP Foundation. You know, last week we heard how uh, Darren Berg built this Ponzi scheme, how he convinced a lot of people, how he eventually stole a lot of money. And the one Well, one of the major themes running through his story, and we talked about this a little bit in terms of how people are persuasive and convincing, but he was just so dang trustworthy. And he had sort of a little bit of like sort of an aw shucks thing, you know, like this is not complicated. Um, I can take care of this for you. But that quality of his personality made him very successful for a while. And that's very comforting. When you have somebody who makes you feel at ease, that's one of the tactics that cons use. They want to become your friend. They want to assert their expertise so that you trust them, so that you don't ask very many questions. But one of the best things an investor can do is ask questions and to keep on asking questions where's my money? How could I lose it? How liquid is this investment? Uh, how does it make money? How does it lose money? And want to stress that people should look for a registered broker. Absolutely. And this fellow never was. Well, Jerry, bear with us. We're going to get into the second part of the story of Darren Berg and his Ponzi scheme and eventually what happens and and where Darren Berg is today. In 2018, Kira O'Rourke was living in Seattle and working on a story for Seattle Met magazine. And she was learning a lot about Darren Berg, his business and his past. For me, investigating this story, what was interesting was that he did either have a lot of luck or there's something about his personality that enabled him to convince people to look past that, to not look at it, to not dig deeper and to confirm that Darren was who he said he was. Darren Berg was convincing and likable, but his crimes were catching up to him. Kenneth Hines worked as a special agent for the IRS for 25 years. The Berg case naturally came to his office. What we do is is cases like what we'll talk about today, where we have victims that have been 
either part of a Ponzi scheme or victims that have been defrauded through identity theft or uh, mortgage schemes, investment fraud, uh, fall victim to a whole host of different things that involve someone trying to take someone's money from them uh, illegally. When lawyers and investigators started knocking on his door, Berg seemed to want to help, or at least that was the act. Well, as, as, as he put forward to his attorney was that uh, he started a legitimate investment uh, firm, uh, you know, rooting. And what he did was the first few years, everything was going great. Things were going uh, according to plan, as his plan, or as he was trying to tell us was his plan. Yeah. And then around 08, 09, when the housing market started to go down and, and we had the financial crisis un- unraveling in the U.S., he tried to use that as an excuse why he started using later investor funds to pay previous investors. Uh, and that was his excuse why the Ponzi scheme started. That's pretty much the definition of a Ponzi scheme. And at the end of the day, if is the smoking gun in some respects, the fact that, you know, if no investments, real investments were actually made with his with the money that was being given to him, that's proof of the crime. And some there are, there are some real investments. Right. Just that. There's, they're not all real investments. You do some uh, to establish the the, the illusion of a, of a viable company, right? Yeah. Uh, but then you just start making things up. And as you bring in more money that you don't invest and you spend, you have to bring even more money in. So you got to start doing more things. So it just becomes this uh, just snowball effect where it just grows, 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 grows to the point where you can't bring in enough money to keep it going. But Berg seemed to be downplaying any sort of big-time criminal strategy. It was more like he had good intentions. He made legitimate investments for his clients, but then things went a little sideways. This was far from the truth. Among the hundreds putting money into the Meridian Group was a well-known best-selling mystery writer. My name is J.H. Ames. I started writing in the early 80s. I write murder mysteries primarily, and mostly police procedurals. Over time, Jantz invested close to half a million dollars with Berg and the Meridian Group. I never met the man in person. We had our investment advisor who stood here in our living room and told us what a great guy he was and how wonderful Darren Berg was doing and how much fun it was to play golf with him four months before the whole thing blew sky high. But as investigators went to work digging into his business, Jantz and her husband didn't know anything about what was going on with their money. The case was complex and tangled. Berg was pretty skilled at moving his money around. In some ways, this Ponzi scheme is just a Ponzi scheme, that investors are giving Darren Berg their money, and then he is using new investors' money to pay back his original investors, or to pay them interest. He is operating all of these different businesses and subsidiary companies and funding his lifestyle, that money is just moving between all of these different silos at such a pace that the case seems like it's a drug case rather than a Ponzi scheme case. But the missing dollar amounts were piling up, and investigators were realizing the astonishing amount of money that Darren Berg stole from investors. More than $100 million through the Meridian Group. IRS agent Kenneth Hines was getting to know many of the investors, now victims of Berg's scam. We talked to an author you may be familiar with there in Washington State who, you know, she invested $500,000. Were there people who invested, others that you were aware of that had invested that much? Yeah, there were some investors that were that high and, and some were a little bit less. Uh, but you figure it was $180 million and there's a lot of investors involved. Some people lost everything. Investing $500,000 and losing $500,000 is a horrible thing to do. 
it's just a horrible thing to happen to you. Uh, and, you know, then you look at someone might lose 100000 uh, and that's everything to them. Right. Not cheaper than what happens to someone that loses 500000 but if you lose everything, it's devastating. You know, it's just regardless of the amount, right? Uh, and I think that's the impact that sometimes doesn't get the, the attention it needs to get to in a white-collar crime. I think we look at the big dollar amount. Yeah. And we look how much was taken, and then we look at the top investors that lost a lot of money, and then there's they're they're devastated as well. And then there's the whole host of people that lost everything uh, that now can't pay for their assisted living bills or have to go out and get a job uh, in the job market because they can't they can't live like they have nothing to live on because they lost everything. No, your point is is well made. I, I, we do. I think you're right. Focus on those you know people that. That again, it's a horrible thing to have happen, but might be able to deal with the impact of it in in a way that's very different from someone who you know a nest egg is all relative, right? Yes, exactly. You know, if you if you lose uh, ten thousand dollars in a in a bad investment, not even talking about fraud, just you lose ten thousand dollars in a bad investment at twenty five, you got time to recover that. You lose uh, ten thousand dollars in a bad investment at seventy five, your likelihood of recovering that is 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 not. Likely, right? It's just, it's all a matter of who gets victimized. Not one victim is more important than another. It's just, I think when there's a sentencing impact or the impact of the overall fraud is what is the economic impact for the, for the individual person involved? I'm always struck by two things when I interview people about Ponzi schemes. One is that, you know, how much harder would it be to go legit and actually invest some of this money over the years into something that would you know, grow money legally. That's one thing. And then the other is Ponzi schemes always, there's no real end game. It seems like eventually they're going to get caught. Hopefully. Um, yes. It just, hopefully they're caught before it's devastating. Yeah. And in some cases it, it dries up when the money dries up, when they, you can't bring people in anymore and you start missing interest payments because at one point it grows so big, yeah. uh, you have to bring in so much money. You just can't possibly do it anymore. And then in 2008, 2009, a lot of people start, stopped investing in mortgage securities or mortgage-backed securities yeah. because the housing market was tanking. So people were running to other ways. There was uh, some studies that show how much money came out of the mortgage industry and went into like bonds or into uh, money market accounts. There's so much was going on that people didn't want to invest in that type of investment anymore. So if he's not getting new money, he can't pay the people back that are already there. And there's only so much moving money around and all shucksing his way out of things Berg can do. The police finally put the handcuffs on him. Prosecutors charged him with nine counts of wire fraud and one count of money laundering, and he was arrested. And the judge decided to detain him before trial because they worried that he would be a flight risk, as did the victims to this Ponzi scheme. They feared that he would uh, run, that he would... Uh, not return whatever money that was still available, but use it for his own escape and livelihood going forth. Like many of the investors who lost a fortune investing in the Meridian Group, the writer J.A. Jantz heard about Berg's arrest on the news. I found out about it in a newspaper article. It felt like my stomach went through the floor. It was a shock. And my husband and I sat here and stared at one another and said, can this be true? But of course it was true. As it turns out, prosecutors didn't have to prepare for a lengthy trial. Well, he pled guilty, so everything gets wrapped up pretty quick when someone pleads guilty, uh, even through the court process. Uh, investigations can take, uh, 
years to put something together like this. It, it all de- it all depends on uh, what was going on. And he, he was cooperating. He was meeting with the U.S. attorney. He was meeting with the investigators. Uh, he, helped, he supposedly was helping him with uh, tracking the assets. Uh, but that wasn't always going well. He wasn't, was he completely truthful or not? That's what uh, the government was looking at. And so it was uh, the sentencing hearing that was brought up, you know, that they don't think he was completely honest. He was helping some, but they don't believe he might have been completely honest. He was ultimately convicted of wire fraud, money laundering, and bankruptcy fraud. It was up to a judge to decide Berg's fate. Kira O'Rourke read letters that Berg's mother and sister wrote to the judge. Uh, She and her daughter, Darren's sister, also have uh, their own testimony, letters that they had sent to the judge, I believe it was, uh, explaining what they thought they knew about Darren and why he did what he did. And uh, ultimately, they were asking for leniency. Surprisingly, though, in asking for a lighter sentence, Berg's mother didn't put all of the blame on Berg. She suggested that some of that blame lay with the investors, that it was their greed that uh, enabled Darren to do what what he did. So there was some apologizing for his actions and some um, refusing to acknowledge, perhaps, uh, what had happened or or thinking that some other people other than Darren were to blame. Kira O'Rourke also read the letter Berg's sister wrote that looked further into Berg's past, into that imaginary world that Berg created as a child. His sister wrote that she thinks that his childhood really shaped uh, who he turned out to be, that Back when there was this tumultuous household, when their father was um, railing at his children, when there was violence and Darren just seemed to sleep through it, sometimes literally, that his mind was shutting down and that's when it started. And uh, it was too scary for him as a kid to navigate that world. And so what he did was he created one and he invented Rod Taylor and continued to invent and reinvent himself in the years since. The investors and retirees who'd lost their life savings got their chance to tell their stories, too. At a sentencing, some made comments or letters to the court where people are going to have to move out of uh, either assisted living locations or nursing homes because they don't have the money to pay that anymore. I mean, that's horrible to think about if that were a family member or someone that you, you know, you were familiar with to think that they would have to move out of an assisted living home. Yes. The judge handed down 18 years in federal prison and ordered Berg to pay back the lion's share of the money he stole. He was sentenced and he was ordered to pay restitution of $140 million. Uh, so, you know, there was, there, was, there was heavy punishment for him on this. The victims in this case felt that that sentence was not strong enough, that it did not uh, honor the loss they felt and the loss of trust and the pain that they felt and that it wasn't punitive enough to this person who had um, who had lied for, for years and that they were collateral as a result. It was unlikely the victims would ever see anything close to the amount of money that had been stolen. At one point, Mark Calvert estimated that investors could recover between 9 and 20 percent of the original money, he said, that they of the original amount that they had given to Darren. Uh, and more recently, he had was estimating that it might be as much as 26 or 28 percent that they could get back, but still a fraction of what they had invested. Darren Berg was sent to a prison in Atwater, California. 
but the story is far from over. Where Darren was incarcerated in Atwater, California, was not the high-security prison that was surrounded by razor wire and had six guard towers surrounding the perimeter, even though I understand that the towers were unoccupied. He was in a camp where about 1,200 inmates were serving their sentences, and that camp had minimal fencing and security because the prisoners were considered solo risk. So... Um, There were basketball courts and a track and field and a softball diamond, and all of the prisoners were generally required to work. So that could mean serving food in the cafeteria or maintenance at the the, uh, site, uh, working for prison wages. Uh, He had been there since 2016. And one day when all of the inmates lined up to be counted... Corrections officers were conducting what's called a stand-up count, and men must wait outside of the cubicles where they sleep as the guards tally up and make sure that everybody was there. And Darren Berg was gone. Berg wasn't just missing from the inmate count. He had vanished. Uh, All I know is I got an email from a former agent that used to work for me, uh, sent me an email saying, hey, did you hear about uh, Berg uh, escaped from prison? So, or walked away from prison. I guess escape sounds like you have to dig a tunnel or something. You just kind of walked away from this one. I thought, how do people escape from prison, really? Of course, you see news items about it from time to time, and often these people are caught. But um, but that he was just able to walk off of the grounds, and that was it, it just seemed remarkable and um, kind of an incredible parallel to what he had done with the Meridian Group making investors' money disappear, and then all of a sudden, just like that, Darren Berg is gone too. I asked Kenneth Hines more about Berg's escape and what he knows today. And did you, or have you in the past year, heard, I mean, not officially, obviously, it's not your case, uh, but heard, you know, talk or rumors or whisperings of where of where the heck this guy's gone to? Just, he's got money somewhere. That's, yeah. that's kind of the one, one back and forth between people. Is he's got money somewhere, and that's where he went to. But suffice to say, a guy with money like that has the means to hide out for in some way or another for a while. Uh, possibly, yeah. Possibly. If you think that Hines seems less than forthcoming about the possible whereabouts of Darren Berg, you're right. This is an active manhunt, after all. And while he might not be a dangerous criminal, he is wanted and on the run. Federal authorities are reluctant to talk about um, what they know about his escape. Uh, The U.S. Marshals Service put out a wanted poster for him, and the Federal Bureau of Prisons alerted the agency to his escape. And so deputies, uh, I believe, are still trying to track down him among other fugitives. So they asked residents in California and Oregon and Washington if they had any information about his whereabouts and asked them to contact him. J.A. Jance has her own theories about how Berg escaped, where he is, and what's happening with the search. He escaped with some kind of help, and he. I've heard rumors that he's in Cuba or someplace that doesn't have extradition anyway. Well, you don't get you don't get to fly on a private jet. I know something about private jets, and private jets cost a lot of money. He had help. He had money. He had assistance, and he, nobody cares. Nobody's really trying to catch him. Nobody's trying to get our money back. We have to assume that's not the case, that there are investigators on the hunt, following whatever leads they have. I asked Kenneth Hines about his personal feelings about Berg's escape after working to put him behind bars. My, my personal reaction is I, 
I feel for the victims because once they hear something like this, it's all again brings up all that bad memory. I think I think the the impact of the victims is is more important to what how I feel personally. So there are people who think that Darren's going to get bored wherever he is, and pop his head out, or want to gloat, or um, show himself. Others think that there's no way that he's ever going to turn up again. Some people think that he's going to make a mistake, and that is how he's going to out himself. Other people think that if he shows up again, it's because he wants to show up again, and that there's no way that he could make a mistake. And the, today, there is just still that mystery about who he is and what he thinks and how much is calculated, how much is folly, and how much is him. J.A. Jantz deals with her anger and feelings about the case by writing. Her novel, Clawback, deals with the Ponzi scheme, and she doesn't let the bad guys off the hook. Well, the wonderful thing about reading, being a mystery writer is you can get even with people. You know, I think for people who have been um, victimized like this, I know it was good for me to write the story, but it might be good for them to read the story as well. There's a weird Hollywood twist to Burke's story. Along the way, Kira O'Rourke talked to a former Berg employee. He was able to tell her a lot about the culture of the Meridian Group. He also told the story of a lavish party Berg threw with A-list musicians. This employee was also a witness to a big party that Darren threw. He rented out what was an EMP Sky Church during uh, an association meeting, and it was an event that he hoped would win over business for his bus company, and he paid Ben Folds and John Mayer to perform at what was a rather intimate gathering. John Mayer later appeared in the movie Get Hard, and in that movie, Will Ferrell plays a fraudster, and Will Ferrell's character is arrested mid-set when John Mayer is performing at his birthday party. Uh, it seems like it's a nod to reality, but I wasn't able to confirm with John Mayer myself. The scene is funny, but there's nothing funny about the millions of dollars and hundreds of victims wondering where Darren Berg is today. People like J.A. Jantz. How can this be? How could this have happened? How could I have been so stupid? And And you go through all kinds of self-flagellation, but the truth is what's gone is gone, what's done is done, and you need to pick up the pieces and go on. Jance admits it's been easier for her to move on than other people, at least financially, retirees who've gone back to work in their 80s to try to make ends meet. So what can you do? How can you avoid an investment scam like Darren Berg's? Kenneth Hines says there are red flags you can look out for. You know, it's I wish there was the, the silver bullet to take care of this, but there's not. It's due diligence on your part. Uh, be careful, you know, what kind of things are being promised to you. Uh, some of the things that I heard from victims that uh, I, Ponzi, uh, Ponzi scenes I investigated uh, was one, one victim said to me, well, you know, 20% was a little high, I believe, but if I got just half that, I'd be happy. You know, it's like, you're rationalizing an unrationalizable comment from somebody. So, you know, and they're like, yeah, I should have realized that. But that's the thing is, you know, you get to know somebody, you trust them. And that's what a lot of the victims say is they got to know the person. They were likable or an employee for him uh, or her was likable. And people like to do business with people they like. 
and that and that's I'm not saying don't do business with people you like. I'm just saying you have to be careful. Uh, look behind the numbers. Ask some questions. Ask some follow ups. Uh, see what else is going on. See what else is out there. Um, yeah. There's a lot of red flags that you can look for. Uh, people that say, "Hey, don't tell anyone else about this. This is a super secret investment." Or you know, if the government hears about this, they'll shut it down. Well, none of us will get our money back. Those are the kind of things right. that you hear people say. Uh, and sadly enough, sometimes when these type of schemes happen, uh, I've gone out and interviewed people, and they wouldn't want to talk to me because they were told by the person, hey, once the government's involved, they're not going to let you get this money because the government doesn't want you to have this money. But they were just telling them, you know, they were trying to hide their own tracks. And and then, then it comes out later that there was a big Ponzi scheme, and then the people want to start talking to the government and start helping the investigators. So there are so many different little nuances to this. And while there are certainly those red flags, when it comes to someone like Darren Berg, it seems that almost anyone could get tangled up in his web of lies. I think Darren Berg's Ponzi scheme was so successful because he not only won over the trust of his investors who found him likable, outgoing, charismatic, relatable, everything that they wanted to see in him, but that he also maintained control of everything. He didn't uh, delegate in a way that would open himself up to risk, that would leave him vulnerable of detection, that his deception was really rooted in uh, how much he was doing. And perhaps that led to the sort of um, bursts of anger that would happen in the office, that he was doing so much all by himself, trying to keep this afloat until one day he couldn't anymore. There are a lot of people who want to find Darren Berg today. I can imagine a wall with a map and clues and leads and agents passing information back and forth. J.A. Jance isn't so sure. There hasn't been any indication from on in the uh, media here in the Seattle area, where most of the victims were, that anyone is bothering to track that guy down. As far as if you're not, if you're not somebody who was personally built. It's all water under the bridge. He flew away on a private jet somewhere and is gone for good and still spending our money. He he had that money hidden and nobody gave a rat's ass about getting it back. All right, I'm back with Jerry Walsh. She is president of the FINRA Foundation and we conclude our rather shocking story of Darren Berg. You were just telling me that uh, you actually checked to see if he's been caught. We we have not heard anything, but you you looked as well. I did. I looked on the website of the Bureau of Federal Prisons, and uh, a lot of people might not know, but all of your listeners should be aware that there is a federal inmate locator. Okay. Uh, and you can look up somebody by name and find out where they are. And it says that he escaped in December 2017, and he's not back in custody. He is not. And where he is, apparently no one knows. There may be some law enforcement who has has an idea or or something going on that, that we don't know about. But most state uh, bureaus of corrections also have uh, inmate locators. And in addition, you know, one of the things we talked about last week was that you want to do business with a registered professional and to use broker check, FINRA's tool. But, you know, you can look up those federal and state prison databases to see whether the person you're doing business with or thinking ah. of doing business with has been uh, in the big house. So you could look up broker check and hopefully that would have already covered off any 
issues of, of prior arrests. But if you want to be really sure, do what you're saying. Do some cross-checking. Use, right, right, right. And just yeah. to clarify, though, with Darren Berg, he was never in broker check. So he doesn't right. even show up because he wasn't registered either by the state or by the Securities and Exchange Commission or by FINRA to sell investments. Along the way, you have in, in your line of work, uh, you, I'm sure you've talked to a lot of people who have lost money with financial fraud. It, it is a, a real tragedy. It's a tragedy. It is one of the most difficult things. Um, you know, one of the things that the foundation has been working with AARP and the Fraud Watch Network on is really kind of changing the conversation about victims because, you know, encouraging people to come forward with their story is hard enough. But when they're vilified or told that they were stupid or greedy and that that's why they lost their money, the reality is that the profile of investment fraud victims you know, most of us can look in the mirror and see that profile. It's intelligent, often married individuals who are college educated, who have some knowledge about financial matters. And maybe some money that you've made in your career along the way. Especially if they're older and yeah. nearing retirement, they've got a nest egg that they can invest. We heard an interesting point uh, that J.A. Jantz, the author, made uh, in the first episode last week of this story. She lost uh, around half a million dollars. And that amount is shocking, but she very graciously pointed out that people might lose $50,000 and that's their nest egg. She was able, you know, and is able to build back what she lost. She's a successful author, but uh, the amount of money, while it gets headlines, doesn't always uh, doesn't always make clear how devastating it's been to people who have lost a certain amount of money that is still everything. Exactly. And it's not only the money that they lose. It's the sleepless nights. It's the failed marriage. It's the emotional distress. It's the inability to concentrate. Um, the FINRA Foundation has done some research into the, the effects of fraud. And what we see is that, you know, people who have been challenged with these losses of money, it's, it's not just the loss of the money. They lose faith in themselves. They lose faith in the industry. They lose faith in their fellow man. And you hear about lives really just falling apart. I mean, shattered. Can, yeah. Health. You mentioned, you know, sleepless nights, but, you know, I'm sure health is one thing that can suffer greatly when you're worried about your finances. We all know that. Especially depression. That's one of the um, the, the consequences of this kind of engagement in a financial fraud. Have you had the, uh, maybe I shouldn't say had the opportunity or the, the misfortune to uh, talk directly to people who have been the fraudsters or people who are fraudsters and, and interviewed them at all? We have. Um, and in fact, we've we've done some collaboration with um, Doug Shadell out at AARP Washington State uh, to interview fraudsters and to hear firsthand how they do it. And they will tell us straight out of the gate that they fire every arrow in their quiver at their targets. They will use every persuasion technique and they will change tactics depending on what works. And so if somebody responds to kind of that angry beating up, don't miss this opportunity, don't you wear the pants in the family, can't you make a decision, you have to make the decision now. Wow, you sound really convincing. You've heard, hey, you, you have heard them. I have heard yeah, them. Yeah. But sometimes they'll be like, you know what? Don't worry. I've got this. Your check is coming next month. Your next, your check is coming next week. And you know what? It'll come the next day and then you feel even better about it. Every, every trick in the book, right? They're, they're not going to leave any of that unturned. 
And so in some cases, it's a hard sell. In some cases, it's a soft sell. And we should stress, like a lot of really successful scams that last for a while and make a lot of money, they're in it for the long haul. Darren Berg was in it for quite a long time. And clearly a master of persuasion. Yeah. Other Ponzi schemes, maybe they're considered smaller, but like we pointed out, a certain amount of money might be a lot of money. It doesn't, doesn't the dollar amount doesn't matter, but there are some where people, it, it seems, are, are more willing to sort of jump in and then quickly leave town. They're, they're, it's not the long haul Ponzi scheme. Right. That happens quite a lot. And sometimes it's in a, a, a much less sexy investment, maybe a promissory note, um, which sounds a lot like a certificate of deposit. It's often pitched that way, and it's pitched as being as safe as that. Um, but that kind of an investment, you're always encouraged to you know, roll it over so that you're not um, ever cashing your money out. Um, you're just buying a new note but the reason you're being encouraged to buy a new note is because the con behind it doesn't have the money to pay you back. All right, Jerry Walsh, uh, it's been r- really helpful having you here telling us all about the world of Ponzi schemes, investment fraud. It is it is an awful reality for a lot of people out there who have lost uh, a lot of money. And I know there are a lot of investors with uh, Darren Berg who are certainly hoping that someone catches up with him somewhere, wherever he is. Any final uh, tips or advice you can give to people who uh, who want to invest some money? Absolutely. I mean, you should be able to make money, right? And, oh. and, and have like, you know, a su- successful investment plan. And a great way to do it is to work with investment professionals. The truth is that most investment professionals are hardworking, honest individuals who put their clients first. Um, so some of the ways that you can protect yourself are to check out the individual that you are trusting your money to. Make sure that they're registered either as a broker or an advisor. Go to FINRA.org, use BrokerCheck. That's the tool that we have where you can make sure the person is registered. If they're not, that's a big red flag. But another thing that you can do is make sure you are staying diversified. You always want to start with investment goals uh, and then tailor your investments to those goals. But make sure that you're spreading out your risk by spreading out your investments. But couldn't one fraudster have a very nice diversified portfolio that he's telling you about? Potentially, but most of the cons that we've encountered tend to have one fund. Okay. Right. Or one one investment. It's it's a gold coin or it's a real estate fund or it's some sort of, you know, pipeline to, you know, riches. Um, And so you want to make sure that you've got a mix of stocks and bonds. And uh, people often mix that up by investing in mutual funds that are traded on exchanges. Um, And you also want to have an amount of cash. You want to make sure that you've got some liquidity in your portfolio, that you're able to tap the money if you need it now. A lot of these investment schemes, they tell you that it's a long-term investment. And that's something not necessarily to consider a red flag, but make sure that you've got a portfolio that's diversified enough that if you need to take money out now, you can do do it. it. Yeah. And another resource that might be helpful um, for your listeners is um, we have a a helpline. It's called the Securities Helpline for Seniors, although we've heard from people ages 18 to 102 years old. Um, It's staffed from 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, Eastern Time. um, And it's a toll-free number where you can call if you've got questions about your investment accounts. And I can give you that number. And and you're there answering personally, right, Jerry? Uh, not me personally, <laughs> but my colleagues. Please. My 
my colleagues who are examiners, actually, okay. who who are skilled in knowing what broker-dealers are supposed to do to comply sure. with the law. So it's actually a terrific service. Yes, please give us the number. Yeah. Absolutely. It's 844-574-3577. Toll-free, 844-57-HELPS, H-E-L-P-S. Great. Jerry Walsh is president of the FINRA Foundation. Thank you so much for being here this week and last week talking about Ponzi schemes, this particular one, and uh, in general, a lot of great advice. Thank you. Thank you. For more information and resources on how to protect yourself or a loved one from becoming a victim of a scam, you can visit aarp.org slash fraudwatchnetwork. As always, thanks to my team of scam busters, producers Julie Getz and Brooke Ellis, our audio engineer Julio Gonzalez, and of course, my co-host Frank Abagnale. Be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. For The Perfect Scam, I'm Will Johnson. Are you 55 plus? There are many ways your community could use your help. As an AmeriCorps Seniors Volunteer, you can put your skills to work for the causes you care about, whether that's by becoming a companion for an older adult or a foster grandparent for a child, tutoring students, joining a disaster response effort, or fulfilling another interest. Choose how, where, and when you want to volunteer, starting at just a few hours a month. This is your moment to make a positive impact on your community and get back so much more in return. Visit americourt.gov slash your moment today.